The theme we're exploring as we go is what it means to be the church. Hugely important issue for us as the church to grapple with. And Acts has a great deal to teach us. So that's what we're going to be attentive to. And this morning, the aspect of being the church we want to look at is from Acts 14. And it's being resilient. Being resilient. Now at Iconium, they've entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers and against the gospel. So they remained a long time. That's significant right there in verse 3. There was opposition. So what did they do? They didn't say, oh, we can take a hint and leave town. So they remained. That's resilience. So they remained a long time. As we'll see, they do leave after a while, but not until a long while. Speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But when the people of the but but the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers, probably the civil authorities, to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it. The apostles learned of it. And fled. They eventually did leave town. And they fled to Lystra and Derbe, the cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding countries. And there they continued to preach the gospel. They bounced back. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. What happens to this man is, in some sense, perhaps a picture of what God is teaching the church. To stand up, to bounce back, to rise up. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. In Greek, religion... Hermes was the messenger of the gods. So that's where they get this idea of the speaker must have been Hermes. But the priest of Zeus, whose temple were and the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Saul heard of it, or when they realized what was happening, they tore their garments. That was a prophetic gesture in the Old Testament when something blasphemous was happening. 
They tore their garments and they rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. This is an important moment. We're going to come back to it. And we bring you good news. Interestingly, that's the same words that the angels told the shepherds. We bring you good news of great joy. A Savior is born to you. Now, same words reemerge here in the book of Acts. Very interesting. That you should turn from these vain things, gods that aren't really gods, and certainly men that are not the gods you think they are, and those gods aren't gods anyway, turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Pretty comprehensive. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, Yet even during that time when he let the nations go their own way, even then he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons and satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch. Once again, there's opposition now. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up. Shows the role of the church, the corporate body. The disciples gathered around him. He rose up, he entered the city, went right back, he bounced back. And on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe when they had preached the gospel in that city and made many disciples. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. They're retracing their steps is what all that means from where they had been. Strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. What we're looking at in this series, of course, is what it means to be the church. As we've looked at over the preceding weeks, it means being commissioned. That was chapter one. You will be my witnesses. It means being empowered. That was the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down. It means being set apart. And we saw that in that grim episode about Ananias and Sapphira who didn't understand that walking in integrity before God and man and truth-telling is a vital part of being God's people. They lied to the church. They lied to the Holy Spirit. And they were taken right out of the picture in a very graphic way. That's a call to the church to walk in the fear of the Lord, to be set apart. Holiness is being set apart. Being the church means being servants, having servants' hearts. We saw that in chapter 6 about the appointment of deacons and people to serve the widows of the church, Things serving in a practical way. It means being ready. We looked at that 
with Stephen in uh, Acts chapter 7. He was ready to preach the gospel. He was ready to preach it into the face of opposition. And he was ready, and he did, lay down his life for the name of Christ. Being the church means being teachable. Reuben took us there last week about Saul, this highly opinionated Bible teacher. I've read about opinionated Bible teachers. I don't know any, but I've, I've read about them. Paul was like that. Saul was like that. And God had to break through and say, Mister, you've got it wrong. All your years of learning and you've got it wrong. But you know what? He received it. He let God teach him. Powerful moment in church history. And we're all called to be teachable. This morning, we want to look at another one of these being things. And it's being resilient. So being resilient in chapter in Acts 14. Here's how we're going to define this idea. Being resilient it means doing the bounce back thing. Bouncing back. Not being immobilized when something bad happens. Being resilient means doing the counterintuitive thing. Sometimes our intuition, our intuitive reactions will be very misguided. I may want to punch somebody in the nose. And then the Holy Spirit says, don't you remember Sermon on the Mount? Even if it's your enemies, you love them. You turn the other cheek. You don't retaliate. The life Christ calls us to is often in very many ways very counterintuitive. It's not what we would do left to our own reasoning. Doing the bounce back thing, doing the counterintuitive thing. This is being resilient. Doing the how can I exalt Christ thing. When the thing that we have a passion for and that has the priority on our brain screen and on our heart screen is seeing Christ exalted. It's not getting out of a tight fix. It's saying the outcome I'm really concerned about in this situation is that Jesus would be lifted up. That's what matters. That's being resilient. Now let's see in this chapter how that resilience idea comes out. First way is this. In the face of verbal abuse, which I dare say every person in this room at some point has been on the receiving end of, in the face of verbal abuse, they were resilient. They discovered the bounce back thing. Their opponents in the synagogue poisoned the minds of the people, particularly of the Gentiles that were sort of eager to hear. They poisoned their mind, their minds. They spoke very negatively about them. I'm sure it was very dishonest and very much misrepresenting the heart and the character of, of Paul and Barnabas. So what happens? When the minds of the people are poisoned, these two men, they're flesh and blood, they're just like we are. They have feelings, and they know they're being spoken against in a very dishonest way, inaccurate way. What do they do? Well, they found the bounce back thing. They found the counterintuitive thing, the thing we wouldn't naturally do, but we supernaturally do something different. They found the how can I exalt Christ thing. Here's how it happened, two aspects to it. So Paul and Barnabas remained along 
time. In Iconium, they stayed there. In the face of pretty fierce opposition, that's why Luke uses the word poison, in the face of that, they remained. They just stayed. It's, it's counterintuitive. It's not the thing you would normally do. They could easily have said, oh, okay, okay, we can take a hint. We don't, know if, we don't want to offend anybody and cleared out of town. And eventually they do leave. There is a place. Jesus teaches about it in Matthew chapter 10, verse 23, I believe. He says, if you're persecuted in one village, flee and go to the next. There is a place to do that. But Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Paul, knew that fleeing was not the immediate first response in this situation. They knew, we're meant to stay here. God will move us on, but not yet. So they remained. There is a time to remain. You may be in a job that you want to get out of. You may be in a family you wish you could get out of. I hope this doesn't apply here. You may be in a church <laughs> you wish you could get out of. Well, maybe God's moving you on, or maybe he has brought you to your local church for a reason and for a season, and that season is still now. And the word of the Lord could be, remain. If there's impulses in you, I want to clear out of my job, my marriage, whatever. What's God saying? What's the counterintuitive, resilient thing look like, as difficult as things may be? They remained. And when they remained, they did something. They spoke boldly. Speaking boldly for the Lord. It, they didn't just hang around and be nice. It wasn't only a matter of being nice neighbors. Hi, you know, friendly, you wave across the back lane. It's that, but that's not all they did. They spoke. The name of Jesus was on their lips. And they didn't do it in a sheepish, apologetic, tentative way. They did it boldly, speaking boldly for the Lord. In the years Velma and I lived in Oxford, I got to know a, a fellow. He did tech help for me. When it comes to tech, anything beyond the on button and the off button, I usually need help, okay, like on the computer. And he was a local fellow, and he came to the house, and he would help me with the computers on the fritz or whatever. And I found out in fairly short order, uh, he was a dedicated card-carrying atheist. And he saw stuff up on our walls in the house and in my office at the Bible college, because he came there sometimes. And he found out I was one of those religious people. I was a Christian. And we had some long and very, very, very good talks. And he told me he appreciated talking to me. I felt I needed to get right to the nub of everything. It wasn't endless arguments about evolution and a hundred other things. I thought, you know what? This guy needs to know not only that God exists, but that God has made a way for this him, this guy and me, to get right with him and have eternal life. So in every conversation, I sought for a way, and God almost always provided a natural opportunity. I'd say, you know what it really is all about? I understand your questions about 
evolution and origins and all that, but the real nub of the issue is that God sent Christ to die for our sins and be raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the heart of the good news. I almost always brought that out. I didn't see him turn the corner. We had lots of good, honest chats. And once uh, we were having lunch, which we did probably three or four times a year, and he'd say, Dave, you know what? Every time we get together, you want to go on about this thing about Christ dying for our sins. And he says, I don't like that idea. I'm allergic to it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what? I was glad. Paul says the gospel is an offensive message. Paul says that. He was, this guy was offended. And I thought, well, if that's what he's offended, he said, always said he liked me, but he didn't like the message. Okay. The disciples spoke boldly for the Lord. Let's ask the Lord to help us up our game in that department. Sometimes it's just maybe a 30-second comment. You don't have to give somebody a big, long dissertation or sermon. Christ died for our sins and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. That didn't take me 10 seconds to say that and say it boldly. That's how they bounced back. In the face of poison, they remained and they spoke boldly. Let's look at the next time they had learned to bounce back. In the face of spiritual confusion, they were resilient They see a crippled man healed. Paul looks at him, rise and walk. Stand up on your feet. He does instantly. The crowd completely misconstrues what's going on. And they think these guys must be gods. So they start to prepare sacrifices and worship Paul and Barnabas. So in that moment, this bizarre, almost grotesque confusion happening, what is the resilient thing? What's the bounce back thing? What's the counterintuitive thing? What's the how can we exalt Christ thing? Here's what they did. They bounced back first off by identifying with their hearers. There was no we are above you going on here. We are Men like you. That's what they said. We're just like you. We're made of the same stuff as you guys. Remember Isaiah 53? It's one of the great chapters in all of Scripture about the suffering servant, the Messiah. And one of the key lines in there is this. All we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him, the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. But that initial line, all we like sheep have gone astray. Do you see what the prophet Isaiah is doing there? He doesn't set himself up and say, all you like sheep went astray. He says, all we like sheep. Isaiah included himself personally in that statement. He was identifying with all the other rest of the sinners, with all of us. That's what the apostles do here. They, had, they identified themselves with their hearers. We are men like you. We're human just like you. Sinners just like you. They bounced back by appealing to their hearers. They appealed to them saying, turn from vain things. 
and worship the true and living God. The idea in Scripture, both the Old Testament and New, you look at the original words in the old languages, the idea of repentance, which comes out in both, basically meant turn or change direction. When you turn the steering wheel in the car, that's turning, and that's what repentance was. Turn from vain things and worship the true and living God. Where do I need in my own life, we can each ask this, to grab the steering wheel and turn? It's something deliberate. You don't turn the steering wheel by accident. It's a decision. Getting right with God, being right with God, calls us to turn. And the apostles weren't shy about this. They did say, you know, what you're doing right now, coming out with giving offerings to Barnabas and me, that's vain, that's vanity. You're worshiping something or you're wanting to worship something here that isn't God. That's vanity. That's, you're worshiping a vain thing. So what can you do? Well, you can turn and worship the true and living God. There's, you could have your devotions for a week on that statement. The true and living God. He's true and he's alive. And he'll put his life in us if we turn to him. Turn from these vain things and worship the true and living God. For the apostles in this scene, being resilient meant identifying with their hearers and appealing to their hearers. They weren't afraid. They weren't embarrassed to say, you need to turn. You need to change direction in your life. That's part of the good news. Well, there's another scene here where they have to be resilient and teach us how to be resilient. In the face, this time, of physical attack, they were resilient. Once in a while, more often than I'd like, I get bad dreams. And I had one about a week ago where I, was, I dreamt I was being mugged and robbed. The guys were jamming their hands into the, uh, the pockets of my coat, presumably, I guessed, in the dream, looking for money or my phone or whatever. And I was, in the dream, I remember being very, very afraid. What are they going to do? Are they going to rob me and then kill me? I was really scared, and I started thrashing around in bed. The next morning, we were getting up, and Velma said, what happened to you last night at 3 in the morning? I knew what it was. I've been kicking around in this bad dream. It was physical attack. It was a physical attack, and that is in a dream. But what happens to Paul and Barnabas here is not a dream. It really happened. They were physically Beaten, Paul was stoned. In the face of physical attack, they were resilient. Paul is stoned and left for dead. So in that situation, for Paul himself and his team, they're all together, they've seen this happen. All right, what's it mean to be resilient? What's the bounce back thing? What's the counterintuitive thing? What's the how can I exalt Christ 
thing. Here's what they did. First, the disciples gathered. I like that detail. And that's not just an incidental detail. It's a significant detail. The disciples gathered about. They gathered around Paul, who's badly, badly injured. Maybe the disciples, some of them wondered if he was dead. The people that had stoned him thought they had killed him. So the disciples gather around him. No doubt they were praying, washing his wounds. We don't have all the details here, except that they gathered around him. There's a principle there that's huge. That's corporiety. We're not isolated individuals. We're not lone rangers. We need to see everything we do as part of the life of the church, life, the life of the body. The disciples gathered around him. Maybe there's something going on in a situation you know about where someone else seems like they've almost been left for dead. Maybe you need to be or we can be the people that gather around them. An opportunity we can have to show resilience. Then Paul, that's what the disciples did, then Paul gets into the act. It just says, he rose up. (laughs) He rose up. It's an interesting word Luke uses there. Sometimes it simply meant rise up like getting up from a seated position. Other times it's used of Christ rising on the morning of the third day. Maybe there's a small hint of that here. He was left for dead, Paul, but he rose up. When he came to, when he started to wake up from being so badly beaten and stoned, what was he thinking? Was he in physical pain? Was there a fear factor pressing in like there was for me in that nightmare? Well, we don't know. But he rose up, and then here's the kicker. You go a few more verses, we just, as we just did in reading the text. He carried on traveling and preaching. This is a man that's living outside of himself. I love that video you showed us, Aaron. That's what dads are there to do. Teach children how to live outside of themselves. And if, if dad is not living outside of himself, he's not going to be able to be effective in teaching his children to live outside of them, themselves. It's a very vital issue. Paul here is a model for us of some, someone living outside of himself. He gets stoned nearly to death. And what's the next thing we see him doing? Traveling, preaching, and strengthening the souls of disciples. That's called living outside of yourself when you've still got the bruises. That's being resilient. That's doing the bounce back thing, the counterintuitive thing, the how can I exalt Christ thing. Now there's one more example we we have here of the church in this chapter demonstrating resilience. The first three happen in particular locations. The fourth one happens in a number of locations and the admonitions we get in this fourth one apply more generally and they even apply, of course, to us. At the end of the reading, we noticed how Paul traveled around encouraging the, the strengthening the souls of the disciples. I think it was in verse 21 strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging, encouraging them 
and encouraging them that by tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. What a paradoxical kingdom. I've traveled over the Atlantic dozens and dozens of times between England and Canada. And when you get off the plane going over, usually we would land in London at Heathrow Airport. All you had to do was have a passport and proper ID and be able to explain what you're going to be doing. I didn't really have trouble getting into the country, into the United Kingdom. You go through passport control. That's how you enter the United Kingdom. How do you enter the kingdom of God? Paul says, well, I'm glad you asked. You, get into, you enter the kingdom of God through going through tribulations, through many tribulations. Is that good news? Many tribulations. The word that Luke uses here, quoting Paul, for tribulations was actually the word for pressures. We enter the kingdom of God through many pressures. All right, when we're under pressure, part of God's entry, part of God's appointed point of entry for us into his kingdom and into his family is the pressure's door. When we're going through that, when you get saved and life gets harder instead of easier, well, how do we do the bounce back thing? How do we do the counterintuitive thing? How do we do the how can I exalt Christ thing? Here's what Paul says, verse 22. He admonishes them to continue in the faith. That's a big word, you know, continue, in sense of importance. I met about a week or two ago with a friend of mine that I've had a fair bit of contact with over many years. He was living effectively and fruitfully for Christ for a long time, very gifted in many ways. His marriage went to pieces, and he, he lost his job in a way he felt was very unjust. And he just, after a while, he didn't have the emotional resources to keep holding on to his faith and keep holding on to God. Today, he's not really walking with the Lord. He's quite bitter. It was a grievous time. We had a good chat, but I went away somewhat sad. That's what Paul is appealing to these people. Continue. You might want to jump ship sometime from your faith. You might want to say, it isn't worth it. Paul says, don't think that. Don't even let your brain go there. If you're feeling that, talk to someone. Continue. It's not a complicated idea. It means stay on the bus. Stay on the train. Stay on the road. Continue in the faith. Maybe that's for you this morning. Continue in the faith knowing something that through many pressures, that's the word, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, getting through those pressures is going to depend on how we see them. 
Ben, could you throw the next image up on the screen? There it is. You're ahead of me. There's two ways to see the pressures you're under right now. <laughs> One is quite impersonal, quite unfeeling. The jaws of the vice don't have any feeling. If you're the piece of wood that gets jammed in there and somebody tightens the screw, the jaws of the vice don't care. They're impersonal. That's one way to think of pressure. The other way is, of course, what Andrea took us to a year or so ago with the modeling the clay. It was a brilliant sermon. I went up to Andrea after she preached that, and I said, I think this morning I got born again, again. <laughs> she said, well, I'm not sure about the theology of that, but uh, I, if it encouraged you, I'm glad. That was a brilliant message, and it's very apropos for even for this morning. When Paul says it's through pressures, we enter the church, we enter the kingdom, we enter God's family, we enter eternal life. It's going to depend if we're going to hang on and continue, if we're going to continue like he says we have to continue, we need to correctly interpret and understand the pressures. Saints, God is not a vice. He's a potter. He works with clay and he's very skilled and he'll work with the clay to mold it according to his purpose. Jeremiah and Paul in the book of Romans both use that potter and clay image. Very profound stuff. Whatever pressures you're under, consider, okay, how am I seeing it? Is it the woodworker's vice or is it the hands of the potter who has a design in mind for me? Ben, if we could have the next image there. If we're going to be resilient, we need to find God in the pressures. We need to meet him there. And we're going to move now briefly and in closing to another part of the New Testament outside of Acts. Resilient people are but not people, hence my shirt. This week I was thinking about this message and I knew I was supposed to speak from Acts but I couldn't get away from 2 Corinthians 4. And I, that, the but not text. We'll look at it in a second together. And Velma and I went on, I think it was Tuesday morning this past week to a little shop just up the street from us, walking distance. And I had a sketch I had made up of what I wanted the shirt to look like. And I said, you think you could do this for me? And he said, oh yeah, that's no problem. And um, he says, if you leave this with me, if you can come back tomorrow morning, I'll have it ready. So next morning, I went back and he, oh yeah, hi, how are you? And he says, just a minute, I'll get your shirt. He lays it out on the, on the counter, this same shirt here. And as he, as he and I, the manager and I, were speaking together, another customer came in to buy something. He was, this customer was standing next to me waiting to, to pay for something. So the manager says, what's this? two core, four stuff. 
I said, and, but not. I said, well, that's, that's a, it's a Bible verse. It's a Bible verse. And then this customer to my right next to me says, but not. What kind of Bible verse is that? <laughs> so I had an opportunity and I quoted it. Here it is. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Resilient people are but not people. As we close, I'm going to see if I can get your assistance here. A little bit of being Anglicans for the next three minutes. We're going to do a responsive reading. Here's what I'd like you to do. I'm going to read through those verses again out loud. And when I get to the underlined bits, the but not bits, I want all of us loud and boldly to declare those words together. Just but not. That's all you have to say, but you have to say it four times. Does that sound good? Okay, we're going to declare something to the heavens, to the earth, to our own hearts. Here we are. When we get to the underlining, I want to hear from the whole church. We are afflicted in every way, crushed, perplexed, driven to despair, persecuted, forsaken, struck down, destroyed. Do you believe that? We need to believe that. We need to believe that resilient people don't have to be but not people. Here's your homework, and I'll turn it over to Aaron. Where do I need, where in my life, where do I need to bounce back? Maybe just think of one area. Don't give yourself a huge assignment to be totally sanctified by 3 p.m. this afternoon, okay? Think of one area to start with. Okay, in that area, I can see it. I, that's a place in my life where I need to bounce back. Where do I need to change the way I see the pressures? I can see it. I've been seeing in my emotional mind, I've been seeing a carpenter's vice, impersonal, uncaring. I need to see the potter's hands. Where's an area in my life I need to change the way I see the pressures? And third, what's an area in my life where do I need to lay hold of the but not? That's our homework. Amen.